Hello, you are listening to Trinity FM. We're joining you live from Trinity Halls, Dublin, a very beautiful location, and to bring you We Lads Big Problems, a show where some very wee lads, including a six foot six man, don't question the logistics of that, um, talk about political issues that they really didn't know all that much about a week ago. So we're not political experts here, we are uh, freshers. That, that's a very important thing to specify, but we're going to try give justice today to um, the situation that is happening currently in China. Um, first of all, we're going to be asking the question, like, how does the Chinese state function? Because when we asked ourselves the question, none of us could really give a definite answer. Nobody, like, China is really prominent in international news, but it seems that nobody really knows how the state functions. After that, we're going to be looking at the current human rights abuses um, that the Chinese state is currently persecuting, is that the word? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and the situation specifically to do with the Uyghur Muslims and the persecution that they are facing in Xinjiang specifically. Um, and after that, uh, Evan is going to be chatting about, oh well, I haven't introduced you to their names yet, but Evan is going to be chatting about um, about what can be done on the international stage, you know, what international countries' roles are in this. Um, and inter- to introduce my guests, well, not guests, we've got Evan's the co-host, and Frank is a guest for this uh, month. We'll not talk about that yet. <laughs> yes. Um, but um, Evan, Karen Key, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm Evan, uh, we're all PPS first years here. Um, I'm from Donegal, Ryan's from Donegal. That uh, pretty much sums up uh, our personality uh, as a whole there. Um, Frank, you're not from Donegal, so you must have something else. Yeah, well, uh, I'm from Dublin, um, <laughs> and I'm missing a philosophy <laughs> tutorial to be here right now, so I hope this is as fun to talk about as it was to research. Badass. <laughs> He's a brave, brave man. Um, anyway, so we'll start. Frank, what are you here to talk about today? Right, so, uh, I mean, as you mentioned already, I am completely new to this. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on Chinese politics or economics, um, although I'm, I'll do my best to seem like I am. Um, so, when, like you were saying, when we were talking about this podcast and what we are going to talk about, it, it occurred to us that we really have very little idea how China works, politically, economically, culturally, we just, just don't really know what's going on over there at all. Uh, I mean, like, if I was to ask you to name any political or public figure apart from Xi Jinping, could you? Um, that's Jack Ma. Okay, right. <laughs> apart from Jack Ma, <laughs> yeah, okay. Jack Ma, he's a businessman, so maybe he doesn't count. But if you compare that to, like, the USA, you could name dozens of American politicians. Most, you know, a lot of people in our course anyway, could probably explain in a lot of detail how the American system works. Um, And I think it's very easy for us in the West to think of China as this one monolithic player on the international stage, as this kind of cohesive single entity with Xi, of course, at the top. Um, And the fact that China has such coordinated foreign policy and economic policy definitely does give that impression when you compare it to the kind of inconsistent and cautious foreign policy of a lot of Western powers. But obviously, that can't be the case. Like, China has a population of 1.4 odd billion people. It's got one of the biggest economies in the world, um, which is going to be the largest economy in the world any minute now, more or less. Um, So it's really remarkable how little we know about the Chinese system and how it all works. Like, 
our parents' lives were probably defined by, were defined partly when we think about international politics. They lived their entire lives and the US was the superpower. Um, and right now, the smart money says that China will be the defining superpower in our lifetimes. And yet, we don't really understand what we're talking about. So that's why I'm here. And so then, you've been doing the research over the last four days. Um, who actually does hold the power in China then? And who, who holds the keys to power? Right. Well, the answer is Xi Jinping. That's pre- that, that is literally it. He holds the power in China completely at the moment. Um, but who holds the key to power is a very interesting question. And I think for some context, just as to where Xi Jinping gets his power, um, it's probably useful to explain how the political structure in China works generally. Um, so I think it's probably best described. Uh, it's, it, is, it still works on what you could call a Leninist model of government. It's the party state. Um, so you have like a, a government state apparatus, but it's completely answerable to the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so at the very top level of government, the Chinese Communist Party makes the big general decisions about the economy, policies, politics, what to do with the country overall. They feed that down to the government. Uh, the government is structured, I guess, broadly the same way you would in the West. It's not democratic, obviously. but um, And then the government actually assumes the burden of actually running the economy, running the country, enacting policy and stuff like that. Um, but what's interesting is that this doesn't just happen at the top level of society. The CCP is involved in all levels of administration. Like, you could have agricultural policy. You could have civil servants working on agricultural policy in some random Chinese province, but there will also be party members doing that same work uh, in that same province. Um, so you've got this interesting system where you have these parallel bureaucracies. On one hand, you've got the government and the civil service, and then on the other hand, you have party members uh, involved in running the country at every level, which seems like a weird system to have. Um, and I guess the reason for that is that it means the government itself is organised maybe a bit more meritocratically, uh, it's organised more practically, but then the party is also just able to make sure at all times, at every level, that the government is doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. Okay, so uh, um, just to clarify, everyone is, you know, is under the party. Whether or not you are a party member, you are still under the responsibility of the party? It's, it's a one-party system. Mm-hmm. Um, there is there is no other other parties um, in the system. It's not a democracy, um, and wherever you're like if you, if you're a civil servant working anywhere in the government, the you will be more or less answerable or at least being kept an eye on by a party member, um, and it's also the party's job to um, I guess you could say like instill the proper values in the people. The party also claims that as their job. So make of that what you want, um, but. At different times in the past, that's worked differently, which is interesting. Uh, sometimes it's been the government, sometimes the army, the secret police or whatever have been the real power brokers in Chinese society. But right now, the party is completely in control. Xi Jinping, as the head of the party, the general secretary, no one's under any illusion that he's the one calling the shots. And what is Xi Jinping's real role in this? Like, just how powerful is he? And in, in what senses is he powerful? How does he, you know, influence the party? Right. So um, it's interesting because before Xi Jinping, um, China claimed that the Chinese government said that it was being run by a collective leadership. And that was, you know, to an extent, at times that was true. So there was a little 
there was a, a council, the secretariat at the top of the party, which was essentially running the country. Um, and like after Mao, the chairmanship was abolished to stop any one leader rising too far above the general party leadership. Now, that's obviously changed. Um, since Xi Jinping got into power in 2012, and especially since 2016, um, the restrictions on his power as the leader have been reduced a lot. The ability to criticise him has been reduced a lot. I think you were talking about that a bit more later, Evan. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it seemed almost for a while, pre-Xi, um, it seemed for a while like there was maybe a slow reform, almost in the direction of a bit more greater you know, government accountability, a bit more freedom of speech. That's all gone now. Um, and previously there was also a lot of, um, I guess, horse trading and negotiating between different factions in Chinese politics. Um, all competing to try and get their people into positions of power. That all looks like it's been pushed to the back because since Xi Jinping got into power, he has been trying hard to cement his power and he's been doing so very, very effectively. Um, he ho- like, Basically, at all times, he holds anti-corruption investigations, is what they're called, over anyone who steps out of line. So if you criticise Xi Jinping, you'll be investigated for corruption. Um, and as soon as he came into power in 2012, that was essentially his first big act was a massive anti-corruption campaign. Now, part of that was actually anti-corruption. There was quite a bit of corruption in the party at the time, from what I can tell. So there was some actual merit in that, but a lot of it was just making sure that people couldn't question him. Um, and he's also removed term limits. He's not nominated a successor. This is all against the orthodoxy in Chinese government. But that's what's going on at the moment. He is completely in power and there isn't any real challengers to him. As things are. And um, I think essential to understanding China's power, at least in the international stage, is understanding its economy. Uh, first of all, Frank, could you tell us um, what China means by state capitalism? What you know, China's form of state capitalism is? And is it a planned economy turning into a free market economy? Is that you know process happening, or are we seeing like a backwards wave uh, since Xi Jinping came into power? You know what's right. happening there. So yeah, it's an interesting one. And state capitalism, I always think, is an interesting word to use, especially in the context of China. Um, so for anyone who's new to, uh, I guess, Chinese politics or history, uh, China used to be a communist planned economy, and over the last. 20-odd years, we have been seeing a pretty consistent move towards more privatisation, more free market. Um, Whether that's going to continue like that um, remains to be seen. But uh, at the moment, the situation is that it's a mixed economy. The government still controls heavy industry. The government controls provision of goods, which they say are essential to the running of the economy, etc., etc. But a lot of the growth we've seen in China in recent years is powered by the private sector. Um, what's interesting is also that it's quite a decentralized system, both in terms of government and in terms of economy. Um, most of the day-to-day administration and so on in any one area is done by a local government or a regional government. And actually, most of the private sector markets are pretty local. There isn't as much you know, national kind of marketplace as there might be in the West, um, with the exception, I guess, of the export economy, which is growing a lot. Um, so... That's interesting. I mean, the fact that you then have, like I talked about earlier, you have these parallel bureaucracies of party and government, and then you have local government, and you have national government, and the fact that you've got all these like overlapping bureaucratic hierarchies, um, as well as the private sector as well, 
means that a lot of the time, just to get things done, there's a lot of informal bargaining, a lot of informal consensus building between different players, um, just to just to you know keep things moving in the way that there wouldn't have been in the past when the economy was completely planned, right? Um, and where in the past the government could just control everything, now a lot of what happens happens out of the direct control of the government, even if it's clearly under the government's eye. Um, so then what that kind of means is, I guess an analogy I like to use is that the economy is a bit like a self-powering engine, which is built out of the interlocking gears, I guess, of state government, local government and private sector. Um, and it's fueled by consumer demand, fueled by supply of labour, and then oiled by pretty good, prudent government monetary and fiscal policy, from what I can tell. Um, so, I mean, this sounds pretty similar to Western democracies, um, and it is in many ways, but there are a few important differences in bet between the Chinese economy and Western economies. And I think the most important one of these is that at close of office, the book stops with Beijing. You could almost say, like, the, the gear of central government is, like, the central one in the engine, and it's the biggest one in the engine, and everything else revolves around that. Whereas in the West, it doesn't work quite like that. Uh, but in China, all the different powerful economic players are answerable, answerable to the government, whereas in the West, it might almost be the other way around. Um, and then another interesting thing, just to close off this, is that I get the impression that in the West, we see markets and free markets as the natural way economic systems work, right? Um, and we see state intervention in the economy as a way of maybe guiding the market, but by contrast, Beijing sees markets to be an effective tool set up and run by the government for the good of the people overall. So what that means is it's almost like the capitalist free markets are for the good of the collective or for the good of the people, um, which is, that's how we get back to why state capitalism is kind of a funny term to use in China's case. Like it almost sounds like a communist is trying to convince you that free markets are actually what Marx wanted all along, which is kind of actually what's happening in China right now. So, yeah. Okay. It's a really interesting idea to, you know, to think that the entire Chinese economic machine relies on the CCP, relies on the state. Uh, and that's, that's a big, big difference from the West. And it's hard to imagine just such political culture forming in the West as well, like um, when we think of our Western values, the Chinese political culture just doesn't really fit with that. And do you know, Frank, can you tell us, um, do the Chinese people uh, buy into the CCP? Do they agree with this, you know, form of state capitalism? What's, do we know their opinions on this, if they can speak at all? Right, well, whether they can speak at all is a different question. But um, I think generally speaking, the CCP is popular in China. And it, it tries to be popular. Um, it does try to enact uh, generally um, policies that the people will like. But generally, you were talking about political culture a little bit there. I think it is worth talking about how political culture is very, very different in China. The role, I think, that the Chinese government plays in the collective psyche of Chinese people is very, very different from how that works in the West. So... For a bit of context, I think that partly comes from the fact that there has been this Chinese civilization that has existed culturally, demographically, geographically, pretty consistently for essentially two millennia. Um, and demographically in particular is interesting 
because the, the idea of China is often uh, linked with the Han people in general in China. So the Han people and China have been one civilization almost for about two millennia. And then, so during that period, the last two millennia, one of the most defining characteristics of the West of Europe has been change and flux and competition between different states and religions. But by contrast, the idea of China existing has been around the whole time. Um, so what that means in the modern day is that the idea of unity and the idea of the preservation of this Chinese culture and civilization are two of the most fundamental political values in China, which is obviously a very far cry from the um, like the individual individualism and everything that we see a lot of on in the West. Yeah, yeah, I think it's like this comes up later. I think as well that that political unity and that uh, idea of China being one thing that we that everyone in China works towards mm. the the benefit of is something that gives China a massive advantage in the international stage when it comes to uh, international relations and uh, having a united front against uh, what they perceive as threats or as competition. Right, right. Um, and so then that means that we then see China as one very cohesive, strong nation-state as such. Um, which is interesting, though, because the fact that... Um, the, the things I was mentioning just there... Um, are part of why Martin Jacques, who's a British uh, journalist and political commentator, um, described China as, if anything, more of like a civilization state than a nation state, which is an interesting term to use. I think it's quite appropriate. Um, so you've got this interesting thing where, in terms of how it's actually administered and how the economy works, it's very decentralized, which it has to be for a country that big. But like you were saying, Evan, the, the Chinese people themselves feel very distinctly Chinese. They feel like the government and they, to an extent, are working for the good of China as a whole, which, like you said, has lots of different advantages. And they clearly recognise the authority of the central government. Um, and so also, in the West, I suppose, we see state legitimacy as coming out of democracy. And state legitimacy comes out of the government respecting individual rights. Um, now, China's not democratic, and it doesn't pretend to be, so obviously that's not the case in China. But in the eyes of the Chinese, you could argue that the Chinese state has more authority and legitimacy in China than Western states do in the West. Um, and so the, the Chinese state then gets its legitimacy instead from this, like, almost a spiritual role, you could say, that the state plays in the Chinese psyche as like the guardian of Chinese civilization and Chinese culture. Um, and I suppose this is partly because historically the role the state played in the collective imagination has never been challenged by religion or anything like that, like it has in the West. Um, and so that then has interesting implications. If the legitimacy of the state doesn't come out of respect for individual rights, that has imp interesting implications for what the state can do regarding individual rights, which you'll be talking about later, Ryan, I know. Um, but um, now, I also, another thing to, to mention would be, well, first of all, I don't know anything about uh, Oriental and Eastern philosophy, and I'm not going to pretend I do, but from what I've read, um, the Confucian Chinese tradition um often emphasizes the value of the cultural norms of homogenizing and standardizing 
Um, and I suppose if you take that to a logical extreme, anything that prioritizes the individual over the collective should be ironed out. And even some people have observed like the idea that rulers and leaders should be held morally responsible for their actions, which is obviously a massively important thing in the West and in other traditions, isn't as important as China as it is in China. So, I mean, is this going to change in the future, like you were asking, as the economy modernizes? Hard to know. It's tempting to think so. I think in the West, we have this idea that as countries modernize, they're naturally going to westernize. I don't think that's necessarily the case, but it will be interesting to see how that develops. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to be very, very difficult to follow up from Frank's brilliant talk there. Um, the amount of research this man did over the last week, uh, I really just, I can't thank you enough for that, Frank. Um, but, oh, wait, one more, um, I have one more question to ask you. Okay. Um, so what other systems or countries would you compare the Chinese system to? Well, um, okay, that's an interesting question. Um, I do think we do, like, in the West, our instinct is to immediately try and compare what's going on in China with some other Western country in the present or past that we can relate it to, right? Um, but... Can we or should we do that? I'm not sure we should. Um, there are definitely some comparisons we can make. Um, first of all, I'd like to point out the Chinese state at the moment is regularly described as communist. Um, and it does have a Leninist kind of government structure. But otherwise, it's not a communist state like you would have described the USSR. Um, it's also tempting to describe it as a fascist state or as some other kind of right-wing autocracy. And I'm not meaning fascist. I mean, when people say fascist these days, it's a bit of a buzzword. When people say fascist, it's often just big, scary state that kills people. Um, people have, uh, commentators have compared it to a fascist state uh, in a, like the fascist states of the 1930s in a few different respects. Um, and it does share some of the core kind of tenets of fascist states in the past. Like, is it a very authoritarian state? Yes. To be honest, fascist states of the 1930s wish they had the kind of authoritarian control over society that Xi Jinping has. Um, is it capitalistic and right-wing in that respect? Yes, it absolutely is. Is it anti-liberal, anti-freedom of speech? Yes, absolutely. And actually, it's not even just that they frame individual rights as being a luxury they can't afford right now, but they'll get back to in the future. Actually, as far as I can tell, individual rights just aren't really that much of a long-term priority in China. So, big fascist vibes off that, obviously. Um, it's also anti-labour. Um, I'm happy to suppress the, gov- the working class as government policy, if that suits their ends. Um, now, that may be about to change in the near future. There's a lot of talk in, in the Chinese government about demand-side reforms in the Chinese economy to try and... Um, redistribute wealth a little bit more to keep the economy flowing. Um, So there may be more income redistribution in the near future. So there's definitely similarities between the Chinese state and maybe fascist governments. But generally, I feel like the word fascist kind of misses the mark. And in generally, sorry, in general, I think we do miss the mark a bit when we try to quickly say, oh, it must be like this or that Western state and we should think about it like this or that Western state or historical Western state. There are some fundamental differences between China and fascist states in the past or any Western state in Europe. China isn't a highly centralized state that even sees itself necessarily as a nation state. 
a civilization state is maybe a better word to describe it, like I was saying earlier. And it's quite a pluralistic uh, country as well, which is kind of what you get when you have a country that large. Um, and I suppose also, whereas fascist states in the past might have been very expansionist, it, China right now isn't as overtly expansionist as fascist states in the past, but watch that space. We'll have to see what happens in the next few years. Um, but I guess the real takeaway here is just that China at the moment is quite a unique state and works in quite a unique way, which makes it hard for me and Westerners in general to understand it. But I think that's what makes it all the more important that we try our best to. Thank you very much, Frank. Um, I com agree completely. The Chinese state as it is now is something that we have never seen the likes of before. And I think that's mainly down, mainly due to the level of technology that Xi Jinping can use to uh to monitor people and to you know to it's got this massive network of control where each um like there might be a massive web but there still is a figure at the top of the web now what i'm here to chat about a wee bit um is the human rights human rights abuses currently happening in china um i want to talk a little bit about um freedom of speech freedom of media and after that, I'm going to be talking about uh, the atrocity that is happening to the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, Xinjiang right now. Um, first of all, uh, with freedom of speech, it, I think it's pretty common knowledge in the West that references to certain historical events and movements um, on the internet are completely blocked by the Chinese state. Uh, the Chinese state com uh, controls the internet in the state, and it's very hard to access anything outside of that. It's, it can be very difficult to get past these blocks, and it's um, the Chinese state has a narrative, and I suppose it is comparable to the US and all the rest in this, but it definitely has its own narrative that it wants to give to the people, and it does this by, you know, by blocking certain websites and by, you know, uh, by blocking certain buzzwords in the media. And in direct text as well, um, TOM Online, the mobile internet main mobile internet company in China, um, it established procedures to block instant messages concerning certain words deemed offensive by the Chinese authorities. Now, we know ourselves, like, what's deemed offensive? Like, it, it's entirely up to the Chinese authorities, and it's up to them mm -hmm. to decide, you know, what is or isn't permissible. And they can essentially ban conversation online over anything that they don't like. Which is a really just, it's a terrifying idea to us anyway. Um, yeah, I suppose uh, like a contrast there with uh, authoritarian states of the past is that China exists in a world now where it has access to the technology that allows it to have that kind of surveillance and that kind mm. of censorship. Mm. Whereas beforehand, uh, you know, the apparatus of the state wasn't, we didn't have the technology to do that level of surveillance and that yeah. level of control. Yeah. And like that level of surveillance becomes especially dangerous um, when it comes to the CCP because the CCP really are not friendly, believe it or not, to criticism. Um, anyone, <laughs> well, nobody could have guessed that. But um, they really, really don't like anyone speaking out against them. And anyone, there's a, a, you know, there's a trend of people, especially big figures, who speak out against the CCP, of them just disappearing or unfortunate accidents happening to them. And I just, you know... You wonder what's going on there, don't you? Yeah, yeah. It's really like criticism of the CCP is, isn't is allowed to an extent because the CCP is supposed to be, um, you know, godlike. It's, it's, it's infallible. 
it's nearly like uh, like that was a big issue that they had during the coronavirus uh, outbreak in Wuhan was that it showed that like the CCP didn't know everything and didn't do everything right and that was a big issue for them you know although interestingly I know this is off topic a little bit but just jumping in there um, I actually feel like they've 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 spin that around pretty effectively um, if anything what it looked like initially um, that this was going to be a massive issue for the Chinese government, right? Because, like you were saying, they present themselves as being almost infallible and suddenly they're not. Um, the Everything that's happened with COVID and the fact that China was able to crack down on it so quickly now almost looks like it could be a real propaganda windfall for the CCP. Um, so that might actually strengthen the position of Xi Jinping and Co in the long run. But I'll let you get back to it. Um, another sort of facet of silencing that uh, Chinese authorities have been using is it's almost illegal now, it's pretty much illegal to be a human rights lawyer, um, which is... Right, okay. That, horrific. Um, the amount of lawyers... I think China has the most lawyers in jail like out of any state. I know that's a very broad statistic, but... Uh, yeah. Um, no, it's um, and I'll be coming to bits of that later, and then how like um, that it comes up in some of my stuff that I was doing there. That like the way they use international relations uh, to stifle criticism of those very uh, human rights effects. Um, and the next sort of facet of silence and uh, really would be to do with religion. And members of the CCP are required to be atheist. Um, this doesn't happen as much in practice. It's not a very harshly enforced rule, I don't believe, but it's still the fact that it is a rule um, says enough. Um, there have been many cases in recent years of the government harassing, detaining, arresting, and sentencing, sentencing to prison a number of religious adherents. Uh, for activities reported to be related to religious beliefs and practices, and persecuting people you know, based on their cultures and religions is something that we all disagree with. And that, that does bring me to my next uh, point, well, not point, my next case, which is the Uyghur uh, Muslims in Xinjiang right now. Um, it's been going on for a few years now. I'm sure we've all seen it in the news and the media. Uh, what China are calling re-education camps. Re-education camps have been set up for Uyghur Muslims to integrate them into Chinese society. And what the Chinese government frames it as, as de-extermination. It's an interesting word. It really is. Yeah. Um, I'll just go over the case as it is today. Um, we have over a million, and I think it's probably a lot more than a million, uh, Uyghur Muslims in these re-education camps in Xinjiang. And let me tell you, re-education re really, really is not the word for it. And now, before reading into this, like I knew the basic premise. I knew that people were being treated terribly, and I knew that um, just what was going on was horrific and comparable to a lot to genocides. A lot of you know human rights organizations are calling this a genocide, and I, I think I personally would be inclined to, believe, to agree with them. But... Um, let me tell you, before reading into this, <sighs> I suppose none of us knew the, any, any idea of the scale of it, you know? Like, you, you see the Instagram slides and you see, um, you see uh, different things in news organisations about it, but when you really read into it, it's horrific, like, the treatment of... I, I, I cannot overemphasise just how bad what's going on in these camps is. Um, whatever you're thinking, I promise you it's worse. I'm not going to talk about what's happening. 
on air. I don't believe it's suitable. I don't believe it's uh, it's right to talk about things like that on air. But um, if you, I, I, I encourage you to read up on it and just to just do a little bit of research because it's far worse than any of us have any idea about the eyewitness accounts um, from officers and people who have escaped the camps are again I'm just not going to talk, go into detail on air but you do have you've uh, just to have a brief idea um, trigger warning murder and rape um, I'm not going to go into detail but right. there is what's going on in these camps you have systematic organized rape on a timetable and that's all I'm not going to go any further it's it's just not uh, it's, 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 it's things especially I think you were talking about the human rights watch report uh, from December last year that goes into detail about that which uh, I found it very interesting to read myself as well um, you know it's it's important to educate ourselves about these things as well mm. and to really take an interest in what's going on over there and not to just click through a few stories on about it on Instagram and move on with your day, you know? Yeah, um, it's really, do you want to get into Evan, just like why the Chinese state are doing this? And I think that we can open this up to discussion. Why are yeah. the Chinese state persecuting Uyghur Muslims like this? I mean, there's, I mean, traditionally, uh, Uyghur Muslims in that area of, um, of China in, uh, in Xinjiang, uh, there, there, there's a, there's, well, to call it an area of China is a contentious uh, thing because uh, up until uh, the 1950s, uh, the area was a uh, vast majority uh, Muslim, Turk, uh, Uyghur Muslims, and their identity was separate from that of the Han Chinese, and they didn't see themselves as Chinese. Um, now, the Chinese government in the 50s started a... Um, uh, kind of almost a forced plantation of um, uh, of Han Chinese into the area and um, I'm not entirely sure in the demographics right now but the Uyghur Muslims form a significant uh, minority in the area I think something like 40, 60 but I couldn't, uh, couldn't uh, don't be quoting me on that um, so essentially one of the main issues there for the Han Chinese is they feel uh, there's a perception, at least anyway, and this is how the, the government is portraying it, is that the, they're tackling terrorism and that uh, it is true that there is a separatist uh, terrorist campaign, uh, if you want to call it that, in, um, in Xinjiang. Um, uh, and that's the, that's the, you know, there have been bombings and there have been uh, attacks uh, in support of the separatism of, the, uh, of that area. But to an extent, um, I think the, the consensus on it is that most of that is blown out of proportion and that uh, essentially the idea of re-education camps is completely, um, it's, it's complete nonsense, essentially. And the, I suppose it's, there's also an idea there that like, why, you want to ask, why are they going through such lengths to... Um, to go and oppress so many people when mm. uh, you know it doesn't seem to, it's not it's obviously not uh, to quell terrorism or anything like that right yeah, yeah. and I think um, and I'm going to quote um, Martin Jacques again a bit here um, I think it's also worth considering that the Chinese um, conception of race in China 
is somewhat different from in the West. And the Han Chinese people have been around for more or less as like a single culture and a single ethnic group for a few millennia now. They make up over 90% of the Chinese population and the remaining 10% is mostly in fringe areas like Xinjiang. So what I think that means importantly is, um, is that for a very long time there's been this idea that Han is China. The Han people are the Chinese people. Um, and then that means that other ethnicities in China possibly aren't really Chinese and are possibly viewed with a little bit more suspicion. Um, now, I know I'm generalizing a bit here. This probably isn't universal in China. Um, but I think there has have also been ideas, pretty long-standing ideas of Han Chinese superiority over other ethnic minorities in China, generally speaking. Those kind of ideas have been around for a while. As I said, they're not universal, but they definitely do exist um, in China. So you can well imagine this is all a big problem for ethnic minorities who are already on the fringes of Chinese society. They're being viewed with suspicion. Sometimes they're just seen as being inferior. And if there's some kind of separatist movement there, anything to indicate that there's reason to view them with suspicion from the perspective of the Chinese government you can you can possibly see why that's such a scary situation for those ethnic minorities. Mm-hmm. China is spitting in the faces of international human rights organizations. It's flexing its economic power, uh, and it's it's while it is trying to hide some of its human rights abuses, it really isn't trying to hide many of them, like it did, many of its restrictions on freedoms, etc. Mm. It's gained this sort of economic clout, as um, <laughs> the Human Rights Watch described it. Um, and it's using it to just, again, spit in the faces of international human rights organizations. And it's interesting because at the exact same time that, that, that this is happening, um, Trump and Indian president, uh, sorry, yeah, uh, and the Brazilian president, uh, where Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro yeah. um, they've at the exact same time been, you know, shadow boxing globalists. Um, who suggest that governments everywhere should be bound by the same standards of human rights. Right. I, I, you know, at the exact same time as China, you know, persecutes its minorities. Yeah. Yeah. So does that mean, sorry to jump in here, but does that mean you think that part of the reason why they've been so happy to spit in the face of international human rights organisations and um, almost show that Uyghurs are being treated like this, is it like a show of force somehow? An international demonstration that this, you know, the Chinese government isn't to be messed with? Is that possible? I really, um, I don't believe it's an international show of strength. Um, I believe maybe the everyday um, persecutions of the Chinese government against even the Han Chinese or just restrictions on the freedom of speech or restrictions on criticism, I believe that that is partially an international show of strength. But what I believe um, the situation of the Uyghur in Xinjiang is... Mm. It's a show of strength to other minorities in China who, you know, may also be considering separatist okay. movements. Okay. And yeah. it's, it's a really, you know, if you try to stand up at all for yourselves, um, this is what's going to happen to you. That, that's why I believe it is. Um, and really... Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a shocking place. It's a shocking way to live and it's, it's a shocking violations of those human rights. Um, do you want to get into, Evan, um, now what international players uh, should do and what they can do to, um, yeah, yeah. to help the situation? Um, 
so essentially, like uh, the first question I want to ask here is, how has uh, China gotten to this situation, right? How how have they uh, come to a situation where they can do such horrible things in Xinjiang and they can do such horrible things, or um, uh, even in uh, Hong Kong and uh, to their own uh, on on the mainland to Han Chinese? How can they violate human rights in so many different ways? Um, in the modern world, when we're supposed to have such great multilateral institutions that prevent human rights abuses like the UN and all this, right? So, essentially, right, I could go into the history of uh, China's foreign affairs here, but that, um, I suppose we can come back to a bit of that later if it's relevant. Um, the main thing to look at here is that, essentially, China has a two-part strategy to, to, uh, to maximise their, their influence on the world stage and to allow them to do what they want to do. And the two-part strategy is... First of all, they try to block international criticism of their human rights record. Um, and as they try to block as much public criticism of that as possible. And secondly, they want to promote these interpretations of national sovereignty and non-interference in national affairs. Um, those kind of ideas that are, um, I suppose, against notions of transparency and accountability and universal human rights. Um, you'll hear this a lot from... Uh, you know, Chinese um, news about Chinese uh, government officials and statements and things like that, that uh, they'll make the argument that what goes on inside China isn't something for the West, that the West should be concerned about. That's an internal Chinese matter. Um, which is, I suppose, it's obviously, it's, it's against this notion that um, we should care about everyone's human rights and the human rights of everyone in every country. Um, so... I want to consider two main parties on the international stage, the US and the EU. And I, there's so many other players and so many other interesting things, and you shouldn't disregard those. But the US and the EU are the two biggest economic and political players from the Western point of view. And the first thing we're going to look at, right, is why can't the EU act? What has stopped the EU from um, acting to stop these particular human rights violations, right? If we look back right to the Tiananmen Square uh, protest in 1989, that was the last time the EU ever put a sanction on China. They haven't, uh, throughout all the last uh, 30 years of um, human rights abuses, the EU has not put one single sanction on the Chinese government since then. And why is that? Because China has economic weight. And they aren't afraid to use it. They are our single largest trading partner in the EU. And like here's some examples of the stuff that they do when people do when the countries do like minor things speaking out against the Chinese government. Like Norway awarded a human rights activist uh, the Nobel Peace, uh, Nobel Peace Prize. He was a Chinese human rights activist. And China suspended all bilateral uh, diplomatic and trade relations. Um, and for Norway, this is horrible because they have an almost they almost have a monopoly on salmon exports to China. Now, after, after, doing, uh, after awarding the Nobel Peace Prize to a Chinese human rights activist, their share of salmon exports to China dropped from 92% to 29%. Like, that's a massive hit to, like, uh, to, the, salmon to the salmon industry in Norway. Sure. And, like, we all know from Brexit how important fishing industry is to the national, to the national psyche. Um, like, uh, in Greece in 2017... Um, they, uh, they were essentially, you don't want to say bribes, but essentially that's what it was. They were bribed into blocking the signing of a joint EU statement 
from the Human Rights Council about human rights abuses, right? Um, and why is that? Because they were they are a recipient of substantial investment from China since the beginning of the debt crisis. Um, you see that in Hungary, and there's fears that uh, Italy are going to start doing the same thing uh, since they endorsed the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, I'll just uh, add one more thing here, and I think this brings out a lot of the reasons why the EU feels that it can't act, is the very recent uh, EU investment deal with China, uh, uh, that concluded at the start of this year, just before Joe Biden took office. And it's been really harshly criticised, um, because... It, now, putting aside the trade part of it, uh, just looking at human rights, um, the height of the commitments that the EU managed to get out of China on human rights was that China would make continued and sustained efforts to ratify international conventions on workers' rights. Right, right. so it hasn't been happening. Yeah, you know, they're going to ratify the conventions at least, you know. Like, that's, that's the height of what they got out of China throughout their entire investment deal that they've been negotiating since 2013. Um, now, there were criticisms that the EU did this because they were being naive and that uh, the Chinese flattered them saying that you have to be autonomous, you have to act away uh, outside of America, you can't depend on America for all your uh, deals and for that kind of stuff. Um, you can say that, oh, well, they got the mandate for it in 2013 and that's why they agreed it. But um, I thought one really, really interesting insight here was that most European diplomats believe that they couldn't have done a better deal. It wasn't an issue of naivety, it wasn't an issue of, um, of the, the EU moving too slowly. It was an issue of the fact that most EU diplomats feel that they don't have the power to take on China, and that regardless of whether or not they had Joe Biden's help, then uh, they couldn't have got anything else out of China on that. Um, like, there's, uh, the US comes into this a big bit as well. Um, because the United States doesn't have such a complex relationship with China as, as the EU does, because the EU is composed of 27 member states, sure. and all of, them, yeah, all of them have different relations with... Um, so it's hard to coordinate. Hard to yeah. coordinate, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The US itself has a very aggressive policy towards China, and the merits of that can be debated another day. But when it comes to human rights, um, I don't think anyone's going to argue that human rights is the priority of the United States. Um, even when dealing with uh, China and with Xinjiang but it is uh, convenient that the biggest superpower in the world is also opposed to the country that's carrying out these horrible, horrible human rights violations mm. now, the issue for the United States is that without cooperation with Europe they can't make a significant impact um, like, we just take Xinjiang for an example um, there's like been talk of forced labour in um, in these areas of uh, from like the 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 force and the labour of the Xinjiang Muslims and the Uyghurs and this is producing cotton that's being used in Nike shoes and Adidas shoes and things like that right and so the the U S said okay we're going to ban all that right we're going to ban the import of any Xinjiang uh, cotton and that's um, that's grand, but 88% of Xinjiang cotton uh, is produced and sold in the Chinese market. So, like, if the China, if, and uh, something like, I think the EU then is the second biggest trading partner of China. So, if you add in those two factors, that uh, China 
produces and uh, buys most of its own goods uh, in this uh, industry. And if you add in the fact that um, well, the EU is the second biggest trading partner, the America just can't act on its own in this sphere. So, you know, I don't want to leave it on too much of a downer, but like, it's very hard for international, um, international organizations like the EU and then the US and other countries around the world to coordinate and take on China in these areas. Right. When China itself, as you were pointing out earlier, Frank, is very unified in its approach and its political system. I think it is particularly interesting that um, one of the, yeah, the defining feature of Chinese foreign policy over the last period has been that the Chinese government is willing to allow their people and their economy to take a hit in the short run if it promotes their strategic interests in the long run, right? So they have been very happy to um, play around with inflation rates in their own country, play around with currency, um, try to reduce worker rate wages and stuff like that to give them leverage on the international scene over other players like the US. That's not really an issue for the Chinese government. If the US tried to get away with stuff like that um, and tried to get away with cutting workers' wages in order to reduce wage inflation, stuff like this, they wouldn't be able to because they wouldn't get re-elected. But China is able to. The EU couldn't, you know, can't compete on that kind of level. Neither can the US um, in terms of making sacrifices to the people of their country in the short run for strategic gains in the long run. And what that means is, like you were saying, China is able to have this very forceful, very coordinated presence on the international scene that it's very hard for the EU and the US and so on to stand up to. I am... Um... Uh, on a more optimistic note, um, if like what this requires, what this situation requires is international cooperation and complete international cooperation. I'm not just talking the EU and the US, you know, like um, for example, the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, that's 57 countries, I believe, right now. Um, China can't take on 57 countries, and we're not talking war; we're talking economically. If both the OIC the EU and the US imposed very, like, I suppose it's the problem, well, first of all, if they um, imposed harsh trade restrictions on China, it would have a very, very big impact on sure. their decisions. I suppose we can get into the morality of sanctions and whether or not sanctions affect governments or the people themselves, you know, and I suppose that's something for the experts to decide. But Right. Um, but, like, what do you think it would take for the US and the EU and this organization of Islamic countries to cooperate in that kind of way? Well, I'd hoped that um, the I'd hoped mass murder would have done it, you know? Yeah, yeah, you would. I had, and um, it hasn't. Like, there is, there is some scope for optimism when I say some scope, but like, um, like, if you look at the EU, an interesting idea I came across was that um, while the EU may be very divided and it may have very um, a very diverse views on how to deal with China, it also has uh, very diverse uh, connections around the world. So, right, you've got Poland, right, who regard the US as uh, Europe's key ally. You've got France, who has a particularly uh, attentive kind of diplomatic um, squad in the Indo-Pacific region. Spain is one of the only member states of the EU that seems to be aware of the influence of China in Latin America. Um, you've got 
all these different countries with all these diplomatic connections and ties to different parts of the world. Um, and that's one possible avenue for greater economic cooperation um, with regards to China. Um, the other room for optimism is that in the EU itself, um, over the last uh, year, year or so due to the pandemic, attitudes towards China have been hardening in, uh, in certain areas with regards to like how people see China, do they perceive China as a force for good or a force for bad, or do they think we should take on China in human rights violations? But is that? And the association of China with the pandemic has, in some studies, have shown that there's been a, reduce, a reduction in positive public opinion. It's interesting, China, though, it, it feels like that's for the wrong reasons, though. Like, it is, you, like, but... Increasing negative attitudes towards China at the moment are, like you were saying, a lot of them are because of association between China and the pandemic, which is... I mean, okay, the Chinese government, local or state government, did make mistakes in the early days of the pandemic. There's no doubt about that. But the idea that it's a Chinese virus is essentially oh, yeah, a racist no. notion. It is stop. completely. Yeah. <clears throat> so we, we need to separate the idea of opposing China and opposing the Chinese people and culture. Right. Uh, the Chinese state is essentially what you're looking at there. That like, The Chinese state has, for... A very long time tried to portray a positive image in Europe, and it's tried to um, uh, improve its diplomatic relations. It's tried to portray itself as a friend of Europe, as all these, uh, as an investor, as a partner for Europe, and that's made it harder for the EU to coordinate action in Xinjiang. Mm-hmm. You know, and there, there is some evidence that even with the protest uh, protests in Hong Kong and with the violations of uh, human rights in Xinjiang that people across Europe are starting to see the Chinese state as less of a good thing and that a lot of the diplomatic efforts by the Chinese state to go in and make themselves look like friends of Europe um, have haven't really hit off it's it's one area where the Chinese state has failed in a way mm-hmm. um, right okay yeah, there's, and there's other things as well that um, that can be done. Like, uh, like sanctions might be very unlikely on a national level, but sanctions against particular politicians in China, like uh, prevent them from using European bank accounts or American bank accounts, um, or even uh, like using the UN Human Rights Council. Um, essentially, like there's this thing called the Hu- the EU China Human Rights Dialogue that has more or less replaced any uh, EU support for uh, China-specific resolutions in the Human Rights Council. And the issue with that is that this EU human rights, EU-China human human rights dialogue outside the UN has no... Um, it's all behind closed doors. It's right. very easy for China to manipulate it and say that uh, we can't have these NGOs and we can't have these... Um, we can't have this kind of... Uh, uh, player coming in and talking to us. We can't have we can't discuss these things. Whereas when it's in the UN it's much harder for China to exert that kind of power. So like manipulating for the EU to take a more aggressive attitude towards pursuing these human rights violations would be a very would be great. Would, would be a very positive thing for the EU to do, you know? And I yeah. I think there is some scope for um hope there, you know, and that hopefully maybe the EU will move closer to the US position on human rights in, right. in China. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, 
yeah. Have we got anything else planned up, or will we finish it three minutes or so early? I suppose we'll just do a conclusion, won't we? Yeah, I mean... Um, right, well, we had an insane turnout today. We had 38 listeners at a stage, which um, I can't thank you all enough for the support. Um, you're all brilliant. We all love you to bits. Um, next week, I think we will be tackling uh, populism in Europe, I believe. Don't, you know, that's not 100% yet, but um, that will probably be, probably be next week's topic. I'd like to say a massive thank you to our, uh, our guest, Frank Wolf. Um, he's an amazing man. He's a genius. I don't know how he does it. Just an insane amount of respect for him. And I'd also like to say thank you to you, Evan, who put, uh, again, an insane amount of research into this and preparing this, you know, during lectures as well. Well, not, he wasn't writing, writing it all down <laughs> during the actual lectures themselves. But, um, I did that a bit, but we're not going with it. <laughs> we'll not talk about that. I swear we're not sacrificing our careers for this. Or maybe this is our career. <gasps> Uh, RT, if you're listening, um, <laughs> we've got thir- <laughs> 38 listeners. I mean, I have to start somewhere. <laughs> and also, uh, Xi Jinping, if you're listening, um, if you are going to kill me, can you just like wait till tomorrow? I want to get a pizza first. <laughs> like, if we are going, and if we disappear over the next, like, you know, over the next two years, if either of any of us disappear, or all three of us, you know what happened. Thank you very much for listening. Um, we've been We Lads, Big Problems on Trinity FM, and hopefully we'll see you all again next week. Bye-bye.